Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Good morning. It's great to be with you. It feels like it's been a long time since I got to speak to you from up here. kind of has been, hasn't it? With the power outage and then we had an Independence Day themed message that just didn't seem appropriate to do in August or September or December. So uh, it's good to be back. Today, uh, we get to talk about the Bible. And this is a Bible for me. It's my favorite one. It doesn't make it out much anymore uh, because it's uh, kind of falling apart. Um, and I don't want to, I want you to mistake from the, uh, from the illustration there. I don't think he's making a point about reading off your iPhone. I think he's making a point about uh, how well we know it ourselves. I actually read most of my devotions off iPhone and iPad because they have fantastic reading plans. But the question today that we're going to deal with is, how has the Bible grounded and written your history? And how will it write that history? You know, um, I looked at various man-on-the-street interviews that you can find online about people's views of the Bible. And they were all over, they were all, all over the place. They were just not focused. They weren't real well put together. But I did find one, that's the reason we're not using it. I did find one common theme that every single person wrestled with. And, and that's going to even be a more specific question for us today. The specific question we're going to deal with today is how do we view and respond to the authority of the Bible? In other words, when we talk about authority, how much authority does the Bible actually have to set boundaries or to set guidelines or to influence your life in, in every area of your life? How much authority does the Bible have in your life as a parent, as a, as a spouse, uh, or if you're dating? Uh, how does the Bible have authority in terms of how you date and how you approach that? Does the, does the Bible have authority in your workplace to define how you do your job and why you do your job? And, and, and how you relate to people and your finances and how you deal with conflict and void. Or, or maybe we could even talk about, does the Bible have authority to deal with some of the great moral issues that we're dealing with, especially in the political environment of today, the, the definition of marriage, the view of sexuality, even beyond that to the idea of what they've been wrestling with lately in terms of this, this new act to define when we forgive college debt and how we do that and why we do that or or even just simply, does it have the authority to define for us how the government even should view debt and how we should use debt? Just the small issues of our day. Really, we could look in this audience, probably take a, take a microphone around, and if we couldn't find it here, we could walk within 10 minutes of this place and find a huge diversity of views on the authority of the Bible. We could see people who would believe that it is inspired, that it is authoritative, that it is inerrant, and it demands complete compliance from us if we're really going to be faithful to follow God. We could find people as well who think, oh, it's authoritative and inspired, but we're not 100% sure that it's been transmitted from the time it was written to now through translations and years accurately. And there'd be some people who would argue that. And there's other people who would just simply say that the Bible is the writing of fallible humans trying to subjectively describe their experience of an infinite God. And then others who would just say it's, it's great, and maybe if not great, it's at least compelling religious literature. 
but it's just made up by man. You see, authority of the Bible, the authority question is really the relevancy to living question. Does it or should it or to what extent does the Bible have real power in our lives to shape who we are in all things? Today, we, we, we've already answered a number of those questions in terms of, of authority questions in, in previous sermons. Today, we're going to focus primarily on looking at a passage uh, where Jesus is uh, talking about his relationship and how he views the Bible. And frankly, we're going to look at this passage partially because there are a lot of people who actually take this passage and use it as an argument to state that the Bible uh, can change over time. That Jesus himself is asserting this idea that the Bible is just something that, you know, he's, he, he can change it because we grow, we change, we, we, we get more educated, life changes, and so we can change some things. So let's, let's look at the text. It's in Mark 7, 1 through 13. And it says this, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. And then Mark actually, which he rarely does, puts this parenthetical statement in because Mark's audience that he's writing to is actually the Romans, the Gentiles. And so he's trying to put this parenthetical statement in to describe to them the traditions of the Jews that they wouldn't understand. So he goes on to say, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands or ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. And it goes on to say, So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Korban, it was a tradition established around the time of Jesus, that it is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and you do many things like that. Now, here's where the confusion comes in, and here's where the misinterpretation oftentimes comes in. There are people who argue that when Jesus is talking about the tradition of the elders, that he's including Moses and the Old Testament prophets and all the people who wrote Scripture. And so, therefore, they argue from this passage that Jesus is changing things stated clearly in the Old Testament law that have been practiced for a long time. And in so doing, by him changing them, he is communicating this message that traditions and even the moral and religious beliefs and practices that they can change over time. You know, we, we grow and we free ourselves of regressive ways of thinking when we grow and are educated more. You know, this belief is often actually heard in our culture today in the arguments about morality in relation to sexual practices, in relation to sexual orientation, the definition of marriage, and a host of others. And yet the passage today for our first point is actually, uh, the real Jesus is actually saying to us in this that his entire life, is adjusted around the authority of the Bible. And as such, the invitation to us is that Jesus is also asking us to do the same thing. 
In this passage, Jesus criticizes the tradition of the elders three times. And it's not that Jesus is against traditions. I mean, traditions are absolutely necessary. In fact, the Bible's full of them. Jesus practices traditions. Uh, in fact, all of us practice, practice traditions. Think of it this way. Traditions are like a schedule or a structure. In marriage, you have traditions, right? You observe certain practices, certain special days, and if you don't, you sleep on the couch, right? We all understand that. You can't have healthy relationships without traditions, with God or with others. And yet some of us in our own religious experience where we came out of situations where tradition was done rotely without much meaning to us, we sometimes forget that traditions are needed to be healthy because we dismiss those unhealthy things from our past. And further, humans, as all of us are, we love to find the specifics. We love to define everything so that there is no uncertainty in life. And therefore, we're always prone to create traditions that go beyond the Bible. You see, we create traditions, or you could call traditions life-guiding rules. We create them out of fear sometimes. Years ago, there's the classic, the classic illustration that all of us can probably be familiar with from our grandparents or something else. They used to say in church that cards and drinking were, were wrong, right? Why? Because they were afraid of what? They were afraid of the abuses of gambling and falling prey to that. They were afraid of the abuses that come with alcoholism and falling prey to that. So they came up with traditions and statements, you don't drink, you don't chew, and you don't go with girls to do, right? That was the church. That was my grandfather's church. That was many of your church experiences that you do, you came up with. We also create traditions out of a need for self-control or to prop up our sense of self-worth, our own sense of goodness or righteousness. So we ask questions like, what does it mean to forgive? How do you forgive? How often do you forgive? And those are all questions that were asked of Jesus, and Jesus answered them. But oftentimes when we answer those questions in a church world, we go beyond what the real Jesus teaches or the Bible teaches. And we we go to the point where we say, well, forgiveness means you soften all the consequences. Forgiveness also means you let go of all the consequences. And we end up becoming nice instead of following God. And we think that being a good Christian and forgiving is all about being nice. Never getting angry. Never taking anything out. Never allowing consequences that are painful to stay in place. And we ourselves become these emotionally stifled, unhealthy people. We lose a sense of the real Jesus, the real God, and we impose our own ideas on what this looks like to alleviate our fear or to give us a temporary fix of feeling like we're in control. We do it in another way, too. We, uh, we also uh, uh, create traditions to alleviate our lack of tangible control in our relationship with God who is intangible spirit to us. For instance, the Sabbath day was originally created and we see this, we've seen this already as we looked at the real Jesus in the earlier in Mark. The Sabbath day originally was created as a day of rest, a day for us to commune with the living God, a day for us to be replenished by His presence, to know Him, to set aside time to have relationship with Him and yet it 
was long even before Jesus' time, and especially by Jesus' time, their interpretation of that ended up being a couple hundred rules as to what you could and couldn't do that would define work and not work. And the focus becomes something other than what it really is. In this passage, we see the same thing happening. We could, uh, some people could look at these washings that Jesus is referring to in this passage that we've had today and, and think, oh, Jesus is talking about just good hygiene, right? No, what he's actually referring to is ritual purity rules. Ritual purity rules were things that applied almost exclusively to the priests. And they were things like um, washing of hands before they went in to offer sacrifice. And it was actually this wonderfully beautiful practice. It's just full of imagery of the people worshiping and watching, washing the priest wash his hands, reminding ourselves that we're not worthy to go before God, that we need to be cleaned by him. Beautiful, tangible, practical, visual things to aid us in worship. Not, a, not unlike at all our practice of communion, the bread and the cup that we take. Or not unlike at all the things that we do on, on certain Sundays, especially around holidays like Good Friday when we've taken and we've done things and we've nailed them to the cross. They're, they're, the ritual purity laws were meant to be things that visually, tactilely enhanced our expression of worship to remind us of truth in our relationship with God. But by the time of Jesus These ritual cleanliness laws had been applied to everybody and everything, expanded to all Jews. In fact, they were all captured a a century or so after Jesus in the the book that is now the second most holy book in the the Jewish tradition. It's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, I actually looked it up on on Amazon.com for an English translation, and it's 876 pages long, and that's not large print. It's, It's the small print. An R.C. Sproul, a commentator I read often, uh, makes this comment about it. He says, in the Mishnah, of the rules written there, not all of its rules, about ritual washings, over 25% of the rules written in the Mishnah are about these ritual washings. You see, the rules created by the church, by the tradition of the elders, not by the Old Testament writers of Scripture, by the people who tried to interpret that, originated out of fear. They originated out of a fear that many of us experience on a daily basis in our relationship with God. A fear of failing, a fear of sin, a fear of being unclean. And so these rules were especially, uh, were especially applied to the unclean unbelievers, the Gentiles, the apostate Jews, the people who had left. And, and so the, the rules were things like if the Jew goes to the marketplace, if the faithful Jew goes to the marketplace and interacts with unbelievers... When they return home, depending on how they interacted, they either had to wash their hands or take a bath because they were unclean. And you see, this corrupts the entire heart of Scripture because the Old Testament talks about the fact that the Jews were selected by God not because they were supposed to be only a special people unto themselves, but because they were supposed to be a light of God's love to the entire world to draw everybody to God and it corrupts their mission completely. Can you imagine how it felt to be an irreligious person in the marketplace and have this Jew come to you knowing that they're going to do business with you and knowing that they're going to have to go home and wash because they interacted with you and they shook your hand or took money from you? And yet the church today, all of us, myself, you, all of us, so easily fall prey to the same use of tradition 
the same constructing of rules that prop up our fear of not being good enough or prop up our sense that we are righteous enough and protect us. And so often it undermines mission. It undermines the heart of who God is and what he's called us to be. You see it easiest in parenting, and we all struggle with this one, don't we, if we've got kids? We struggle with the idea of keeping them safe from people who think wrongly or behave wrongly or don't do because uh, we don't want them to learn the right things instead of instead of seeing it as God is teaching asking us to teach them to be sent to be in relationship with them in a loving way to draw them to be strong enough we want to keep them safe and we too easily replace God's mission of love with fear of sin with fear of failure with fear of contamination. And we create rules and and traditions to insulate our fear rather than live as people of faith. Jesus goes on in the passage to illustrate this whole idea of Corban, and then he ends it by saying, and you do many other things like this as well. And he sums it up this way in verse 13. He says, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. You see, Jesus is upholding the absolute authority of the Bible. And he's attacking the traditions of men that impose ideas on the Bible that aren't there. Jesus' life, in essence, is actually communicating to us that if you fail to hold to the unique authority of the Bible, this is what the real Jesus, through his example here and through other texts that we're going to look at in a minute, is saying, if you fail to hold to the unique authority of the Bible to, to guide absolutely everything in your life, you allow anything else to be equal to it, then you fail to worship God. And you fail to follow me, is what he's saying. Jesus is making this a worship issue. In Matthew 5.18, he goes on and says this. He says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth, another view of how he views the Bible, and I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Another more literal translation actually uses the words, not a jot, which is the word for the smallest Hebrew letter, and not a tittle, which is, the, which is a word for if you just started to draw a letter, but you never even finish. It's just even a dot on the page. Not even, it's, it's so important, this Bible, this truth, that none of it will disappear, Jesus says, until it's all fulfilled. And Jesus did everything according to the Scripture. We see it again in Matthew 26, and I've just put part of it up there, but it's the context of Jesus being arrested uh, and going to the cross the next day. And it's right after Peter has taken out his sword and swung it and cut this guy's ear off, and, and Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And when we hear that phrase, we think, wow, that's authority. But he goes on and says this, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? He has the authority to call legions of angels, and yet he submits his own authority to the Bible. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? It goes on and says, At that time Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this, in verse 56, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. There's purpose for his life that the Bible declares. 
and there is for ours as well. Every time a little challenge, every time a big challenge came up to Jesus, he faced it with the authority of the Bible. Now, we're going to have more scriptures in the Living the Quest after the message that you can get online uh, this week that talk about this so you can ponder it more. But, but let me have, ask you to ponder this question. If, if you were in a plane that was hopelessly without power and it was spinning out of control as it plunged to the earth, what do you cry out? In those moments, do you start thinking, oh, what should I say now? What's the right thing to say? No, we don't do that right. Whatever fills our heart comes out. And we look at Jesus and we see when Jesus was stabbed and bleeding on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you were here by chance with us on on Good Friday, you may remember that that Jesus was using a rabbinical method of teaching that was very common in his day where he would quote just a portion of it and expect his disciples to remember remember the rest of it. And when Jesus quotes that scripture and you read the rest of the context, you realize that Jesus is giving them hope. He's defining for them in that statement, not just what's going on with him, but he's defining for his disciples, there's hope, there's purpose. This is all prophesied. This is part of God's plan. He quotes later Psalm 31.5 on the cross, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And again, he's expecting them to know the context. And the context goes on and, and it's hope. It says, Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth is what it says next. You see, in his death, in his pain, in his utter agony, Jesus expresses his feelings. He expresses his faith through quoting, through speaking in line with the Scripture. It was so important to his life. Jesus' life demonstrates a full commitment to the authority of Scripture. It's so easy for us to argue and think, you know, I like parts of the Bible and other parts. Well, they seem regressive. They seem outdated. They seem in light of the modern world and the knowledge we have today. They just don't seem right. But Jesus is actually saying to us, you can't be a follower of me and reject the very basis of how I lived my life. You can't read Jesus, the real Jesus, honestly and not walk away with that statement as hard as it is for us to accept. Unless we're willing to conform our lives to the authority of the Scripture, even when it pinches us in what we think culture should be, even when it confronts the behavior and the likes and the dislikes of our friendships and what we enjoy doing, even even when it exacerbates our feelings unless we're willing to allow it to become the authority in our life in all those situations, Jesus is saying, you can't follow me. And yet when even I listen to somebody else saying what I've just said, our first thoughts, my first thoughts come up to all the difficult challenges and it's so easy to just just get in this mindset that, yeah, he's asking us to just suck it up and gut it out and just do the difficult stuff. And and you know what? Yeah, sometimes the reality of life leaves us there, and that is true. We just got to suck it up and we got to obey if we're going to submit and follow him. But we need so much more than that. And Jesus in this passage is giving us that more than that in in the second point. And that's the second point is just that we need to grasp the purpose of the Bible as Jesus sees it. 
He says this. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he's quoting Isaiah 29, 13. And in so doing, he shows us that his intent in communicating that is that, that the heart and the purpose of the Old Testament, the heart and the purpose of his life, and the heart and the purpose of the New Testament, which is yet to be written when Jesus says this, is not formal compliance, a dry, duty-filled, suck-it-up compliance to do what's right, even though it doesn't feel pleasant. The purpose of the Bible is not dry, duty-filled compliance, but healthy, vibrant, beautiful relationship. For example, we often read the Ten Commandments. And we would honor them and recognize them as having great influence in all of history. But we tend to read things like that in isolation instead of reading them in the context of when they're given. You see, God didn't come to the people of Israel in Egypt and say, I'm going to save you if you obey my law. They didn't even have the law. They didn't even have the Ten Commandments then. He didn't say, if you're good enough, I'll save you. No, he saved them without them lifting a finger. He saved them, why? Not because they were obedient, not because they obeyed the law, because they didn't have it. He saves them because he loves them. And then he gives them the law. And he says to them, by giving you the law, now that I've saved you, now that I've loved you, now that I've brought you to myself, I want, to, I want you to be blessed in order to be blessed You need to understand the law and follow the rules. And yet we think so often that obeying the law, obeying the commandments, obeying the rules, obeying the Bible is all too often antithetical to to intimate relationship. Some of us who've been around church a long time would have a hard time saying that. But how many of you have thought, I don't know if I want to be too good of a Christian because it will mean I have to give so much up. Ever had that thought? Not even once. How many of you have ever had the question in your mind, if I, being a Christian, being a good Christian, obeying the law means I can't have some of the fun that I want to have? We've all thought those thoughts, right? We've all struggled with those things, right? I was having a conversation with a dear friend a while ago, and she'd had an interaction with her teenage daughter. They are fantastic parents, great boundaries, just some of the best parents I know. And just raising fantastic kids. And and her teenage daughter came to her and said, Mom, I want to have a normal teenage experience. I don't want to have to abide by all these strict rules. I want to have a normal teenage experience. She had a great response. She looked at her and said, Okay, honey, normal teen experience is you're going to get your heart broken over and over again by immature relationships because people are driven by hormones and don't have any idea how to have loving, good relationships. Do you want that? Uh, normal, normal teenage relationship is 50% or more of women will be sexually abused by the time they're uh, undone with their teenagers, teenage years. Is that what you want? Do you want to have that? Do you want to have normal teenage relationship where people are always constantly calling you too fat, too thin, too smart, too dumb? It doesn't matter what you are. They'll still make fun of you at some point and and do you want to be uh, a normal teen who feels like they're lonely in the midst of a crowd 
feels like they're rejected in the midst of people who, who, they, who say they love them but, but doesn't really feel like it? Is that what you want? Do you want a normal experience? And we go through life so often saying, I want a normal teenage experience. I, I want a normal college experience. I want a normal work experience, a normal career experience. I want a normal family experience. I want a normal American dream experience. And the point is that even when we've been raised in the church, we easily think that obeying the rules is antithetical to great, fulfilling, fun relationship. But it's not. Think about it this way. When I first met Wendy, my wife, I started asking questions of our friends, the mutual friends in common. What is she like? What makes her happy? What ticks her off? What is she not like? Why? Because when you love somebody, you begin to submit your will to their likes and their dislikes, their rules, their commands, their understanding, because you love them. Why? Because I want to know what she loves. I want to do what she loves because I want to have a relationship with her. Rules, laws are not antithetical to healthy relationship. They're absolutely necessary for it. Some of you are saying, well, that's nice, isn't it? But some of you are thinking, I I tried that. I submitted my will to somebody else. I, I deferred what I wanted. I learned their rules. I served them. I loved them well, and I lost myself in them because it wasn't reciprocated. And you struggle with that kind of relationship. And you struggle with that same thing in your relationship with God. Am I going to lose myself in my relationship with God if I submit to this? Is it just me submitting and I lose everything? Are, are any of you original Star Trek fans? The original series? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, well, I'm going to apologize up front. I, I just, I just, yeah, you watched the last night. Yeah, I'm going to apologize straight off front. I just think it's one of the silliest, most ridiculous shows ever. But there is one show in the, in the midst of it that I think is probably the most ridiculous. How many of you remember the a character Harry Mudd? Yeah, yeah, you do. Okay, Harry Mudd has this ultra-nagging wife, right? And so he flees to another planet to get away from her, right? And on this new planet, he creates all these robots that look like humans. They're all gorgeous women. And he, you know, he just is served in, just in heaven, he thinks. And But then a while later, he gets a little little lonely and wondering if it's all worth it. So he creates this robot that looks exactly and acts exactly like his wife. And, and this is what he liked to do. Stella? Yeah? Hardcore, Fenton Mott. Where have you been? What have you been up to? Have you been drinking again, you miserable sot? You good-for-nothing... Shut up! Okay, how many of you ever wanted that power over your spouse? Now, women, you can admit that about your about your uh, husband. You can admit it out loud, and you're probably going to be fine. Men, if you have that feeling, don't raise your hand because you might be in trouble, right? Okay. Starship Enterprise crew gets there, and they find Harry Mudd inconsolably lonely and desperate. Why? 
because his relationship was just about an object. It wasn't about real relationship. And so often we treat God and we treat the Bible as an object about rules, about things we want to fulfill us and about things that we prefer. And God is calling us beyond that. He wants us to, you know, sometimes when we treat the Bible like an object, we treat it as a place to run to when we feel guilty to affirm that we should feel guilty because for some weird reason we as humans feel better about ourselves when we have somebody confirm our guilt, right? True? And sometimes we run to the Bible because it makes us feel better. And we want to go to the things that make us feel better. And sometimes we just avoid it. Have you ever thought about why you avoid the Bible? Have you ever really thought about it? Because all of us struggle with it. What about the topic? What are the topics that irk you? What are the topics that cause you in the Bible to argue when you read them in the Bible or when you hear people like me or somebody up on a a sermon talk about them? What are the topics that you just can't stand having somebody talk about? See, I think a lot of our avoidance is that we avoid confronting issues or tension points that we don't want to deal with. And the real Jesus, who's inviting us not to him as an object, but to him in relationship is inviting us to deeply love in a relationship where we have both the affirming and the challenging. So how do you read the Bible? Because Jesus makes this extremely important issue for us, as we've seen today, but we also see it when he rises from the dead on the road to Emmaus in the upper room with his disciples. He emphasizes to them that it is imperative to read the Bible rightly. And yet so many of us read the Bible primarily this way. We read it primarily as a prescription manual, a prescriptive manual for ethics and behavior to teach us the right way to live, the right things to do. And the problem with it when we approach the Bible from that perspective is that it creates all sorts of problems. How do you know all these Old Testament characters who did weird things? How do you know what you're supposed to prescribe and what you're not supposed to prescribe? And that's where we have problems with the Bible so often. We look at those things and we go... That seems insane to do that. And when we look at it that way as well, as a prescription manual, we fall into the trap of the religious people of Jesus' day. If it's a prescription manual, then we're going to figure out exactly how to take it and when there's an allergic reaction to it and when we should do this and all this stuff, just like we go to the prescription place at the pharmacy and get it. Determine what we can and can't do with this and when we should use it. Jesus, in sweeping away the traditions of the elders, and is, is saying to us that I am the one you are to follow. And he's saying to us that when we read the Bible, we need to read it from primarily the perspective that it is a love story through which we see how God loves us and how we are to love God. And even within that, to be reminded always that it's not primarily a story about us, it's primarily a story about Him and who He is. And He invites us amazingly in this Bible to a healthy relationship in which we don't lose ourselves. He says if we lose ourselves, we find ourselves. And He invites us to this healthy relationship because He also submits His will and bends His will to us. You look, at, uh, you look at a healthy relationship and both parties are equally invested or, or more so invested in each other 100% and Jesus submits to the authority of the Bible and he bends his will to ours 
to love us where we are at now. To pursue us exactly where we are today. In this, I want to say mutual, but it's not really mutual. In this, in this self extra, extravagantly self-sacrificing relationship, He pursues us. And don't we see this in our own stories of our encounters with God? Our own stories of faith? When you tell those stories and, uh, about your own personal encounters and you see that God came to you in such a unique way to who you are, your personality, being sensitive to that. In Gethsemane, Jesus submits the authority of the Bible and, and bends his will to meet our needs for a relationship of forgiveness and acceptance by saying, not my will, but I'm going to bend it for the mission of loving you because God asks me to. And Jesus invites us all to live like him, fully saturated in knowing what delights his heart and how delighted he is in us, submitting our will fully in response to his extravagant love by respecting the absolute authority of Scripture in our lives so that when we're hurt and when we're cut, we bleed Scripture. I want want you to take a moment right now and uh, Chad, if you could come, take a moment right now. And I don't always ask you to do this, and this is not necessary for prayer to close your eyes, but just because we're around a bunch of people, just to eliminate distractions, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I want you to just ask the Holy Spirit to show you what are the areas that he's been trying to speak to you through in the Bible that irk you, that you avoid, that you hate to face, What are those areas? And now I want you to breathe a prayer and leave a a moment for him to speak to you even as you breathe this prayer. I want you to breathe the prayer and say, God, how do you want me to see that differently, that you're inviting me into a love relationship through what you want me to want to speak to me in that area? Lord, I pray that you would uh, come to us by your Spirit and that in each and every one of us, the ways we have read the Bible and viewed the Bible and viewed your authority through the Bible to us wrongly, Lord, that you would break those, that you would expose those, that we would find the extravagant love relationship that you're calling us to. That the lies we tell ourselves to prop up our own righteousness or to avoid issues you want to deal with, that you'd expose them and remove them and invite us into a fresh relationship with you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to speak to a couple of you and give an invitation. If you're here and you've wrestled with this whole authority thing, 
not just from the perspective of the authority of the Bible, but the authority of Jesus in your life. Some of you have been wrestling for a really long time, and our nature as human beings is that we wrestle with something for a long time, and we will never hear at Quest be a hard sell to you. We, we believe that God can convince you Himself. We're not going to try to pressure you to a decision. At the same time, most of us live life being far more, far, 100% convinced that something is right long before we actually take the action step to say yes to it. And some of you here today, I think, have been struggling with a relationship with God. You've come to the place where you're convinced He is who He says He is. You're convinced that He should be the Lord of your life. And you've been convinced for a while and you just haven't taken that step. I want to invite you to act on it today. Some of you are here and God spoke to you about, I don't know, could be about your marriage. It could be about finances. It could be about the way you bring them into your work. It could be about anything. Take an action step on that. And the action step today could be as simple as this, confessing it to a friend and saying, would you pray for me that I would give this area to God, that I would submit this area to God, and would you support me in that? Let's not be unintentional people. Let's not go away with just a nice idea, a nice thought. Let's act upon what God says for us to do today. Would you do that? If you want somebody to pray for you, whether you're whether it's one of those issues or whether you've got some, just sickness or something else you want somebody to pray for, there'll be a couple people around here or grab a friend. God bless. Have a great week, Quest. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest dot org.